It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's show, I'm talking to RTE Primetime's political correspondent, Katie Hannan, who forensically pursued the Morris McCabe story for over four years. She broke a number of major stories that were instrumental in exposing how the Garda whistleblower had been let down by the state. In Katie's reports, Primetime broadcast evidence that helped disprove the allegation that Morris McCabe had not cooperated with the internal Garda investigation into issues with penalty points and revealed how a series of errors led to the whistleblower being wrongly accused of sexual abuse. Her two-part documentary was highly acclaimed recently. And last weekend, Katie was one of three women journalists shortlisted for the Journalism Excellence Prize at the Irish Red Cross Humanitarian Awards. The honour went to Guardian journalist Maggie O'Kane on the night. Also homeless campaigner Alice Lee, he was named Humanitarian of the Year and students at Tullamore College who campaigned to revoke the deportation order of their friend Nonzo Muyeki were also recognised at the ceremony. But here's Katie Hannan and we talked about a lot more than just Morris McCabe, about the state of journalism today and about the stories that she'd really like to get her teeth into. Katie, you're just back from the Red Cross Humanitarian Awards where you were nominated along with two other women for an Excellence in Journalism Award. What was it like on the night? It was a fantastic night and I have to say a fantastic idea for awards. Um, It was the inaugural year for these awards and uh, there were six awards in total and three of us were nominated for the Excellence in Journalism Award. Um, Shauna Conair and um, Maggie O'Kane, Maggie O'Kane picked up the award on the night, but it was fantastic to be there, fantastic to be with those two women. Mm. Uh, and there was lovely other awards. Alice Leahy uh, picked up an award and got a standing ovation. Pat Hume uh, picked up an award, and it was really there was a very there was a lot of warmth in the room for those awards. You know, it was it was a really fantastic night. And it is brilliant. Like it's not often maybe in in journalism and other places where you can see three women shortlisted, but there's no men on the shortlist. So that was kind of a great. It was. Go the women. I wish you'd have got the award as well. But I mean, Maggie's brilliant, but you're also brilliant, which is what we're going to talk about today. Because, um, you know, it was a good timing, too, because you've just had your two part documentary on Mars McCabe. And that is a story that you've been working on for years. And it's one of those things where people might not quite realise the amount of work that goes into getting a story like that and cultivating that relationship. So I'd love to talk to you a bit about that. When was the first time you sort of got involved with the story? Um, I suppose not long after I was appointed political correspondent in um, primetime in the current affairs department in RTE, um, this story was had been rumbling along. There had been a lot of controversy around uh, the uh, issues around abuses of the penalty point system. There had been an internal Garda inv- uh, inquiry into it. And this had come out and basically said there wasn't much in it. That was the sort of sense after that inquiry. And then uh, a number of months after that, uh, the then Minister Alan Shatter told the Dole that the two whistleblowers who had brought forward those allegations, John Wilson and Maurice McCabe, that they hadn't actually cooperated with the inquiry. And I think that was really for me the moment where I thought, hang on a minute, mm. 
what is going on Why here? Why would whistleblowers Why not? Would, yes, exactly. What, what is this? What's behind this? And I took an interest from that point on. And then it was a few months after that that the whole country uh, f- suddenly found out about Morris Bicay because he gave his evidence before the Public Accounts Committee. And remember as well, it became a hugely controversial issue because the then guard, the Commissioner, Martin Callanan, made some very controversial remarks at that committee, at the Public Accounts Committee, where he said he thought the actions of the whistleblowers in this case uh, had been disgusting. And that was huge because he was he was closing rank. He was saying that one of the members who had been speaking up about something going wrong in the guards was, in fact, a terrible person for doing that. So should it, sort of shutting down anybody who might come up and have things to say. Well, I know that, I mean, himself, he has himself said that he was misinterpreted in that and that he was really talking about that what they were, how they were going about it, that they were downloading people's, you know, pulse files and there was private information on them and that's what he was talking about. But certainly from Maurice McCabe's point of view, and this was very clear in our documentary, he said the minute he heard the guard, the commissioner say those words, that he knew he was finished in the guards. And we had a colleague of his who who was working beside him in... um, Mullingar uh, guard the station and he says he remembers in the aftermath of those remarks that there was a uh, people were pulling away from Morris McCabe that there was a there was a sense that you know we now know what the party line is basically mm. and people were following it. You worked um, very so you, you met him around that time or you met his wife in fact first I think. Well uh, you see I'd been covering it for many years like this is going back as I say to early 2014 and we did a number of key stories along the way um, in relation to uh, when he was taken off polls in relation to again that, that issue about whether or not he had cooperated or had been ordered to cooperate with the Internal Guard the inquiry and we did some uh, big stories in relation to that, to that and the thing about this story was that it was a kind of a chipping away at the story story um, it, it was it just it would not go away it, as we know it, it, it tainted so many political careers so many uh, careers uh, at the senior level in, in uh, on Garda Shikona um, but then I suppose the biggest story along that way was the story of the Tusla file and um this was when I first met Lorraine McCabe mm-hmm. and they they had decided that it was time for them to go public with this story because they had discovered that um, Morris McCabe had been on file with Tusla for, by the time they discovered it, over two years um, and that there had been this extraordinary error, as we're told it was an error, that um, a rape a child rape allegation from a completely different file that had absolutely nothing to do with him uh, had mistakenly been included in a report on him and that files were opened up in his four of his children's names suggesting that, including this rape allegation and suggesting that they, that his children may be at risk uh, in those circumstances. And this file, it was discovered some months after uh, the, the referral went into Tusla that it was entirely a mistake, that it was all wrong, there was efforts made to retrieve the situation. Um, and the, yes, it came back again a year and a half later. Somebody uh, pulled it out of the filing cabinet again, activated it again and wrote to Morris McCabe and said that this allegation was outstanding and asked him to come in to talk to them about it. So, you know, you can imagine any family getting a, fo- a letter like that from Tusla how deeply shocking and distressing that would be. But then imagine that you're Morris McCabe 
And at this stage, he he knows that there is a whispering campaign out there about him. Um, he knows that things are being said around the newsrooms and in doll corridors. Yeah. And and he is now faced with how could this happen? You mm. know, how could how how could it of all the people they make a mistake about? Why is it my file? Mm. Um, so we did that story on on primetime. Uh, that's going back to early 2017 now. Um, and I think that was a huge turning point in terms of the public response to Morris McCabe mm. and that whole Gar the Whistleblower story. And at the time that we did that story, the government had intended to um, uh, hold a commission of investigation because, uh, take it back another step, the former guard, the press officer, had at that point um, come forward with a protected disclosure saying that he had been ordered by the then guard, the Commissioner Martin Callanan, to um, discredit Morris McCabe in conversations with journalists and, and, and others. Um, so there was going to be... Uh, a uh, commission of investigation ordered into these allegations. And then this came out mm. on, uh, as regards the Tusla file. And the McCabe said, look, enough, we can't do this in private behind closed doors again. This has to be a public inquiry. And within seven days of, of that story emerging and there was massive political turmoil around it, uh, uh, the Disclosures Tribunal was established. But you've seen them at such close quarters. You could see the impact these things were having. And then I suppose to some kind of well, probably wouldn't say happy ending, but vindication certainly for Morris McCabe. What what do you what did you observe looking at them as a family and how they've come through it? Because to withstand that kind of thing is just shows some kind of resilience. And I'm sure there were times as he talks about it, like contemplating actually not going on because it was so bad. What what are your obser- observations around that? Well, I suppose the first thing to observe is that you know a lot of this happened before any of us knew who Morris McCabe was, and a lot of this was was uh, these battles they were having and these issues they were coping with were entirely themselves, you know, behind closed doors with with very little support except from their close family and friends. Um, But over the the period that I would, uh, you know, have have seen them, particularly around that Tusla file issue, I mean, what's really striking is what a strong unit they are, Morris and Lorraine McCabe, and particularly uh, how loyal and supportive uh, Lorraine McCabe has been given that she and she was very candid about this in our documentary she really would not have pursued these issues in the way that Morris McCabe pursued them mm. you know she said a number of times it wouldn't be me I would have just let things drop I would have just walked away and got on with our lives but she was married to somebody who couldn't let these things drop and she supported him you know fully all the way through mm. and I think and he says it himself at the end like what got them through it was Lorraine yeah. And um, I think when you see at the very end of the our documentary, we ha- we are able to show the whole family together, and like they're just such uh, an ordinary family in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But they really have been through the most extraordinary experience. But they seem to have somehow managed to emerge at the other side of it, back as an ordinary family. Yeah, I mean the vindication that subsequently happened and the fallout. I mean, in terms of Noreen, as you said, senior political fallout. Noreen Sullivan. Um, Francis Fitzgerald, all the things that happened. How was that bit of it for him and for the family to feel like, even though the public were clearly on his side a lot of the time through it, I think, but then to have it officially sort of said that he was so badly treated and that very terrible things had happened. What was the effect of of that on them? 
They felt, I mean, to be honest, and I suppose this, we, we need to say that the Charlton, the Disclosures Tribunal report um, did not make uh, findings against Frances Fitzgerald. It said that she had yeah. acted appropriately. And also it That's said... That's kind of that what no, I meant, how, what everything came out in the wash. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that Noreen O'Sullivan, of course, as well, um, even though there was issues with some of some elements of her evidence, he said that there was no evidence that she had any knowledge or hand actor part in this campaign of calumny that, that had been mm. waged against him. But... Um, uh, for for the for Mars McKay, what's striking actually is that there you know there are elements of that report that he could quibble with. I'm sure if he was going through the detail, you know, things that he he believed to be true that were not found to be the case in the report. But he it not it doesn't bother him basically. Right. As in it 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 vindicated him, and it it vindicated his motivation for what he did. And uh, it, you know, it kind of set out that he didn't do it for any public profile or, uh, you know, that his reasons were always in the best interests of proper policing Mm. and in the best interests of of the public, basically. And I think for him that he could walk away from all of that with that, Mm. that's enough for him. I don't think and I know a lot of people are talking about, you know, Martin Callan. He's got a, you know, his pension that that he he, as a former guard, the commissioner. And is that right? And again, they're. They're, they're, they're not focused on that. They're not, they're not out there looking for heads on plates to roll or for anyone. They're, for them, the it's fact his good that, name. Yeah, it's the fact that he, his name, he's got his name back, his reputation back, that his motivation is not no longer being questioned, mm. that's enough for them. Do you think, Katie, uh, having gone through it all with the McCabe's, that this whole saga would make people any less or more wanting to come forward if they have issues that they want to bring out, other whistleblowers potentially. Um, is it something that would put you off completely or people might say, actually, there is a process and in the end it's worth it. But what he went through was so harrowing. Yeah, and of course, he himself says that if he knew what was down the road from, down the tracks from, he would not have gone down that road himself. You have to be a particular kind of person, don't you? Because a lot of people reviewing it said he, his his moral goodness sort of shines through, like he's the most straight kind of guy. And even when he was, you know, in training to be a guard, it was what all he ever wanted. He was so committed. And he's that kind of single-minded person in terms of... Yeah, he's got a fairly... Um you know, there's a Guy Clark song, you know, a schoolyard sense of justice, uh, he don't take odds. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And if it's wrong, you can't go along with it. You know, mm. I mean, and as you say, we're a lot, lot of people can blur the lines and that and get on with their lives. But uh, for him, it, it was really important that people were not being let down, that, that you know, victims of crime were not, were getting proper, getting their cases, mm. get, getting a proper investigation. Um yeah, I think that um, uh, I forget. Oh, would, what you were saying would, yeah. would would it inspire other whistleblowers? It's very hard to mm. say. I mean, I know there was some conspiracy theorists out there saying that the reason RT did this was to put off other whistleblowers. <laughs> uh, I I think in one way, I think it would have given some hope to people who are who are da- halfway down that road already. Because to be honest, I don't think these stories very often have a happy ending. It is very difficult if you are uh, trying to blow the whistle in any kind of an institutional setting, in any setting, really. Um, it's very difficult not to be crushed by that system because the institutional instinct is to protect itself at all, at all costs. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, I think it would give a lot of people pause for t- thought um, before they would uh, do what they do. But as you say, 
if you're going to blow the if you're the type of person yeah. you're probably going to do that anyway and you're not going to give up which is what he didn't do either and <clears> like his wife said she would have said right let's cut our losses and just get on with this and he just was never going to do that in the sense of justice and, and what was fair yeah and also he would say that um, there was uh, you know once he had kind of got got Got, got down the road of it and, and was sucked into it he kind of thought he realised then that it wasn't even that he had to push these issues that he was now fighting for himself he was protecting himself and that the fight had to go on until un, until he could you know for his, his own name and for his family that uh, he was actually in defence mode rather than attack mode um, I want to go back now back to your childhood and what made you as a journalist and maybe you weren't quite when you were a child uh, watching the news and thinking I want to do that one day but you grew up in Dua in County Kerry mm-hmm. a very tiny little place tell us about that and about your first inklings that this was the field that you might end up in well yeah so I'm from Dua I'm from a place called Bunglosh actually which is <laughs> Let's get ta- it right. <laughs> which is a townland in the parish of Dua uh, which is a village which is about five miles from Listowel and I would have gone to school in Listowel. Um, I kind, I think I got it into my head to be, um, that I would like to do journalism. I think really I wanted to be a writer. I think a lot of journalists actually start off wanting mm-hmm. to be writers. Um, but then I thought, sure, nobody's going to make a bean out of that. I better think of a real job. And journalism <laughs> sounded like an actual job where you could you could write. Um, and also I used to watch a lot of reruns of um, Lou Grant. <laughs> Yeah. And I used to uh, love Billy on the um, city metro desk. Yeah. Who's always running off and being doing the righteous thing and um, a bit like yourself now, Casey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think I, I kind of suppose I did get kind of caught up in the the romantic idea mm. of fighting the good fight. Um, yeah. So I I did. I, I applied for journalism at the time. There was only one place you could do journalism. That was the school. That was the yeah. Minds journalism course. And we were told nobody ever gets into it. It's impossible. It's so few places. Um, but not only did I get in, but if one of my colleagues, one of my classmates in, in uh, the convent in Listowel got into it as well. Deirdre Walsh, who is now a radio <laughs> presenter down in Kerry. Um, and yeah, so we we did that. And then I ended up uh, straight out of college going into Airtel in RTE. Does anyone remember no. Airtel? <laughs> teletext, RTE's teletext <laughs> service. Um, I did that for a few years. And then I went from there to the Herald, the Evening Herald. And I was the social diarist on the See, Evening Herald. I love Herald. this, that you used to do those gigs where you'd go around and ask people, make sure you spelled people's names correctly and who was there, what was there. What did you learn from that time as social diarist? And did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. It was, but I, you would not have enjoyed it for a long time because it was a sort of a crazy, it was a crazy kind of a lifestyle because you came into work late, you might be out, you might be in, back in the office at four in the morning filing copy for the next day. Um, and you got to meet lots of, like, it was a time, it was the early 90s, so there was like, Dublin was buzzing, you two were bringing supermodels in and there was massive bands coming in every weekend. It was a really... It was a really fun time to mm. be young and to be able to be out at all hours of the morning working uh, all the time. And it was, it's actually very good training, though, for journalism because you have to be able to work a room. You have to have no fear because you're going up to people who are, you know, really used famous. to telling people to <laughs> go away. Yeah. Um, and you have to be able to know what a story is. Like if somebody tells you 10 things, you know, OK, that's the line. And so it was a really, really good, good uh, grounding in kind of reading people and knowing when when to move in and knowing when to move away and um, 
and turning around. I had to produce one way or another. I had to fill two pages of the Herald two every day. pages. <laughs> uh, so you couldn't leave the office until you had. And it was just you, Katie, because in the way sometimes they put on two or three people on that gig mm. now. Yeah, when I started, I was like the extra person. And then quite quickly seeing my extraordinary <laughs> talent, obviously, I, got, I was doing the whole Excellence thing. Excellence in journalism. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was just me for, for, uh, for the time that I was doing it. And it was actually, as I say, it was really, really good training. And uh, then what happened after that? Did you go into RT then or was there No, I was then I moved on. In the, in the mail? I moved from there to, I did a, an opinion column for a while. In the thing, I did the colour, I was the colour writer in the Herald. I did a lot of politics coverage when I was the colour writer. And then um, I became political correspondent in the Herald, yeah. um, which was great. And I loved it. Um, and then I went from there to the Examiner. I went from there to the Mail on Sunday, which was actually still called Ireland on Sunday that time. And then I went back. I went back into RTE after that. And you did the social diary, but was politics always something that you had a massive interest in, and you knew you'd probably want to end up there, or did you fall into it? You know, I didn't know I wanted to do it. Actually, really, um, uh, uh, we were a very political household. We talked politics at home all the time, um, and uh, I suppose I realised actually once I started doing the colour writing. Mm that took you into the political world, took you into Leinster House a lot and, and that I just realised I really loved it. Mm. It, You know, then I realised that I knew a lot about it that I didn't know I knew and that it was a little bit in my blood. Um, and then once I got the bug, yeah, it's very hard to, to step away from it then because it is, it does, it has everything, you know. And going to work in somewhere like um, Primetime, such a huge programme. What was that like? Was it daunting to go into that and was different? I mean, you'd done, obviously done some broadcasting before, but going from print to broadcasting, did you find that daunting? Yeah, yeah. well, you had to learn. I mean, you had to start off again and learn how to write for for television. Completely, it's a completely different skill. Um, and you had to understand about pictures, you had to understand about interviewing. You know, there was just a lot. of But I actually loved that because it was, I just loved the idea of, find, you know, learning a whole new mm. skill set. Um because I had been a journalist for a long time at that stage and I kind of, you kind of feel you get a bit tired and you get a bit stale and stuff. So this, for me, I, I really enjoyed learning the skill and it, it takes a while. Like I'm blush when I think of some of the first <laughs> reports <laughs> I put out. Um, but there's some great producers in primetime um, that, you know, really help you along and help you to tell a, a story. If you've got mm-hmm. a good story, they'll help you get, get it on air really well. What are some of the things you're most proud of? Because Mars McCabe, obviously, in most recent times, has given you all this acclaim. There's been such wonderful feedback about it. It must be very satisfying. But you've worked on so many stories on primetime. Where would you say for you are the personal and professional highlights? God, I should have made a list. Um, <laughs> well, just in the last year as well, I did a lot of work uh, following the Rescue 116 crash in relation to safety issues uh, within the Coast Guard. Um and that's an important story, which, you know, we'll be coming back to again and again, I think. Um, over the years, I, I was I was very interested in the whole mother and baby home story and the Magdalene story. And myself and Tanya Sillam made a documentary some years ago um, about the mother and baby homes, about the vaccination uh, programs that they ran uh, using yeah. the, the children and mother and baby homes. And we discovered in the course of making that documentary that... Something that we had never been had never been revealed before that there had been a policy uh, or a practice at least in a number of the mother and baby homes that when these babies would die, that rather than being sent for burial uh, as normal, that they would be sent for dissection to the medical 
um, to the you know Trinity College and the, the various the various um, anatomy departments. Uh, obviously, with the no no record of consent from the parent from the mother or the or the parents. Um, so you know it was very dark actually that story. But um, I I'm still very proud of that documentary mm-hmm. uh, because I think it was shining a light on on you know a part of our very recent history that we're still, I think, quite uncomfortable about. Uh, and this is the Women's Podcast, so I have to ask you about any kind of discrimination you might have faced as a woman. Do you feel that there's been any treatment of you that's different than, say, your male colleagues, or do you not have any experiences like that? Um, I would have said that when I started in journalism, it never occurred to me for a second. I would have thought totally gender blind everywhere you go. Um it wasn't something that I dwelt on. But certainly I would think as a young political reporter in Leinster House, Leinster House is a very male place. Mm. Um, I definitely got the sense that you were kind of the boys had a better in because most of the, the senior politicians were men. Most of their advisors mm. at that time were men. And there was a lot of kind of pints being bought in rounds and, you know, the odd golf session that you wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't, nobody would even think to <laughs> ask you, did you play? Um, and you did feel a bit like you were the girlene, you know. So I suppose a bit of that was I was very young when I was doing that job in that in those circumstances. But the, yeah, the fact that you were female probably didn't help. And there was, you know, th- th- there was a sort of banter that would now you would be appalled about. At the time, it made you maybe a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but I would say I did. There's a double thing. One is that I do think that we definitely need more women in editorial management positions in terms of getting the right stories out, getting the right people on the stories. Um, but I will also say there has definitely is, is an upside if you're a, a female political journalist in in Ireland because there isn't an awful lot of, of you still. There isn't a lot of and you you get to you get a profile because you get invited on to do podcasts. <laughs> uh, no, but you get you know you get invited yeah. onto panels and you get you 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 are like your name comes up on the the list much faster because people do need to 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 you know feminize their panels mm. and I do think that there while there may be some downsides, I do think you have to acknowledge that there are definitely upsides too. And making a programme like Primetime, and I know you're sort of a reporter, not necessarily involved in producing it all, but diversity is such a huge issue as well, not just for women, but people of colour and making sure that marginalised voices in Ireland are included. Do you notice that is more of a a sort of a thought process when people are putting these things together? Yes, and it's something we do talk about a lot in Primetime. I mean, particularly the, the... gender balance uh, issue which is supposed the most glaring one that that had to be tackled and thankfully re- serious efforts have been made now mm. I think to to try and up the 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 number of women in studio and in our reports but then the next thing that has to be thought about is the wider diversity issue which I think we're way way behind everywhere uh, you know in terms of uh, reporters and um contributors coming from all the very different backgrounds be it more working class people, more, as you say, people of colour, people, you know, uh, foreign nationals, all all the, the various people that now make up our community. Mm-hmm. We really, really, really need to um, think about that. But I mean, if people think that it's not thought about, it is. Yeah. Uh, but the nature of what we do, it can be quite, you can't just kind of, you know, shoehorn people into stories just because they fit the right, you know, the right profile. Um, but it is certainly something that is 
now being thought about in a way that I don't think it was five or certainly not ten years ago. You've been reporting for such a long time that maybe this is um, something you don't have to think about anymore but it means that you can't get involved in kind of having opinions about things. So if you think about the repeal referendum or you think about general elections generally or any issues that come out it's so important for you to stand back. Do you ever find that difficult? Yes, of course it is because we all have opinions Um, but it's also very freeing in that um, because we was a statutory requirement not to not to um, you know declare your your views and your uh, to be impartial at all times if you're an RT reporter um, it does and it, it so it, it's freeing in that nobody is going to be de- demanding to you know for you to lay your your opinion on the line um, but I think also because you are then in that frame of mind it does make you more open-minded about all opinions, I think. Mm. I think it, it's uh, the fact that you are required not to express an opinion. I, th- I think for me anyway, it makes me more open to a broader uh, you know, swathe of opinion. Um, and as you say, it's second nature now. I've, you know, as it's been in RT 15 years um, I, you know, I don't get as frustrated as I, as I might have done, yeah. you know, 15 years to. ago. What are the stories that you still that you think are the most important in Ireland at the moment and the ones that you particularly would like to get your teeth into in a sort of Morris McCabe way? I know that's a particularly quite unique scenario and the way you built up that relationship. It took a lot of time and the trust that was built up there. Um, and you're obviously shown that you are brilliant at that because it's not something everyone can do. It's a real gift, I think, to be able to show to... To, ha- to allow people to trust you and, and all that kind of thing. But what are the stories today in Ireland that you think Primetime needs to be really covering and coming back to again and again? Yeah, you see, I think there are a lot of, of Morris McCabe type stories out there. And I know that certainly when we do, a, like this documentary on before when we did the Tuesday File story, my email fills up with people who have stories that, you know, are not dissimilar in many ways, not necessarily all in uh, in the guards or the justice system, but in all different types of setups, setups where people feel that they were trying to do the right thing and they were, you know, crushed by the system, basically, and, and uh, people desperate for somebody to come along and look at this again. And so I think that those stories are never going to go away. Mm. There's like, I think you could start out tomorrow and you could be working to the day you die and you will always be, and your name is out there as someone who people can come to as well, I imagine. Well, the difficulty is I'll never be able to do the, yeah. the, the you know, you you just couldn't uh, physically tackle the huge number of people who want their story told. And of course, not all of these stories will stand up. That's that's the nature of what we do. And you have to be so careful that you, are, you know, that you pick, you know, that you the story you are supporting does stand up at the end of the day. Um, but um, there are, those are the stories, like stories of people, of the 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 stories of this per- small person against the state or a small person against the corporation, those stories always pull me in because uh, those people need support. And also it it, it shows something wider. You know, it's a universal thing that we all should mm. be aware of what happens when um, somebody tries to do the right thing. Mm. Um, just before we finish, you are quite a private person in terms of like some people in... In RTE, we know a lot about them. We see them on covers of magazines and things. We don't often see you doing that kind of thing. Because nobody ever asked me to be on a cover <laughs> I'm gonna of ask magazine. You, I'm going to ask you one time to be on the Irish Times magazine and then you'd be sorry, Katie Hannon. But uh, you, you don't really, also on Twitter, kind of get very personal either. But you did a couple of years ago 
uh, to your regret, I think. But tell us that story. <laughs> this is why I am very careful about Twitter. Um, many years ago when my... Um, I have twin girls, as do you, yes, Roisin. Something we have in common. Uh, yes. Um, we were both young journalist of the year. That's another thing we have in common. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, years ago when, when my girls were, I uh, was at the toilet training age, uh, we were in sort of an emergency moment and I was running into a hotel in in the city centre to um, see if I could take them to the toilet. And the hotel said the policy was, no, you can't bring children in, not unless you're a customer of the hotel. And I um, rather rashly was persuaded by a friend <laughs> to tweet um, this. And I asked it as a question, you know, am I wrong to be surprised that you know, my children were refused entry to to this hotel toilet. Um, And um, it ended up being picked up by a uh, (laughs) broadsheet.ie. I was asked for interview by a number of newspapers. It became one of the most commented on pieces (laughs) of the day online. And um, I just wanted to hide under a duvet somewhere because I just... I you didn't was, like going viral cases Well, you know what now. it was? It was that it was because I had just mentioned my children and I'm so... I'm allergic to the notion that they will in any way be attached to me in, in any public way. Um, so I, I sort of got a fright from it and um, I have not mentioned my children <laughs> since on the Twitter machine or any other machine. And and just finally, media has changed so much and you've you've been there and seen so many changes in terms of the, the um, emphasis on digital and the way, you know, it's a very different landscape to the one that you would have entered as a young journalism student. What's your feeling about media today, whether print or broadcast and, and how it's going to survive? Do you think about that? Are you kind of conscious that it's changed so much and the opportunities I suppose for younger people coming up are very different and maybe not as many as they were Yeah I do worry that um, the way the media landscape has changed that it has become a job which involves massive productivity uh, for low pay now in many cases Um, and in some ways that gives a lot of openings If if you're a young person wanting to be in the media game there's lots of ways you can do it now that you couldn't have done it Mm. back, back in the day but um, it's also sort of overwhelming if you come from, you know, the old traditional media world um, to take on board where the this business is now going and what is the business model that can actually, who will pay for news? I mean, that's the that's the mm-hmm. key, the key issue. Like every we've had a lot of praise for the Morris McCabe documentary. There were very high production values on that. We had a, you know, a brilliant uh, producer, Moya Carney, brilliant, one of the best VT editors in the country, Ray Roundtree, one of the best cameramen in the country, um, Matt Nocton. And these people spent a lot of time, like you can see the time and the production values on on your screen Mm. when when something gets the resources that that documentary got. But that is expensive. Mm. You know, it is expensive to to produce work of that quality. And it's the same with news and any investigative work you do is expensive. Mm. You cannot toss out, you know, serious investigative journalism. It it costs money. It costs time. And uh, the big question is, you know, how do we persuade people to pay for that? Mm. Um, Because everyone... Loves it and appreciates it. I'm when thinking it's there. of Rosita Boland's piece, which she just won Journalist of the Year which award was for. Which love it. Fantastic piece and a really great example as well of you know careful 
diligent trust forming trust building you know it it, it was an extraordinary piece of work actually Um, and like you say these things don't just happen they have to be given time and space and it's expensive and you're you're relying on people's years of experience as well. So you know that doesn't you you know a twenty you know a twenty year old coming into the business isn't going to wake up with that story of a day. You know, so I do worry about that. But I mean, and also you know when you look at say our audiences in RTE, you know they're getting older. We need to be reaching out to people on on the the other platforms that they call them now. Yes, the new, the whole, <laughs> new language I have to learn. Um, but uh, so there are so many ways to reach people, which is really exciting. But as I say, uh, people are so used to getting stuff for free, content for free. It's uh, I think it's a real conundrum to pull back now, having given people content for free for all these years since uh, these platforms came along. Uh, How do we now remind people that actually this isn't free stuff? This is stuff that somebody, you know, paid a lot for. And I think when you see the likes of Rosita's speech, which is a very long read and how well something like that does. Same with your documentary, which, you know, the whole nation was gripped by. And it was, you know, it must have been so rewarding to know that and to have worked on a story so long to culminate it in that kind of a production. Their interest is there and like people want that kind of stuff. Yeah, because we have kind of persuaded ourselves. And unless you can tell it in a 60 second piece on Twitter, Twitter that has subtitles on it Mm. so that you even if you can't hear it, you can see it. We've convinced ourselves that 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 people's attention span is so poor now that that's all that people want. But I mean, clearly, when you give them, you know, two hours of a documentary over two nights or, as you say, that really fantastic long read that Rosita's piece was, um, and that that I'm sure that must have been one of the it most was, read, yeah. was it on yeah. on, on the yeah, Irish Times? Definitely this year. Uh, you know, it just shows that you if you build it, they will come. Yes. Well, that's a nice way to end it. Uh, congratulations on being shortlisted for the uh, Excellence in Journalism Award alongside Maggie O'Kane and Shona Connor. Uh, that was the Red Cross Humanitarian Awards that happened on Saturday night, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you very much. Um, I'm sure on behalf of loads of people listening for all the work you do and the dogged nature of your work and the, and the diligence that you put in to exposing the small the small guy against the state or and those are the stories like that thing that we were always taught about journalism comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable comfortable, I just think that's a really good it's almost a cliche at this stage something really good to come back to but you don't just uh, do prime time you're also on late debate so tell us about that because that's quite gruelling at the moment three nights a week as well as doing your regular job No well I'm not doing my regular job Okay that's good they don't make you do both that's (laughs) cool I'm irregularly doing late debate now I'm uh, just doing that for a few months and um, it's Tuesday, Wednesday Thursday night uh, at 10 o'clock and it's really great because we can watch you as well as listen to you and I you can only watch us on news now yes and I, <laughs> I actually always feel keep... sorry for you you have to get dressed up to go on the radio now what the uh, hell unfortunately <laughs> I always forget that I am going to be on the ra- on the television as well as being on the radio um, but it is yeah it's a great programme it's uh, uh, it's it's kind of an anarchic uh, feel to it because it's late at night uh, people are a little bit more relaxed maybe and there is a really good banter around the panel uh, generally and we can you know we can do specials on particular subjects or just uh, you know throw around the the political news of the day um, but yeah it's a good change from the you know from the primetime regular stuff from the, the long term documentary work uh, it's a uh, it's good fun. Remind us again the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and night at 10 o'clock on RTE Radio 1 Excellent. or on News Now. Brilliant. <laughs> News Now. Very good. OK, Katie Hannan, thank you very much for coming in. 
That's it for today. Thank you very much to Katie Hannan, who you heard there. And remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can always find us on irishtimes.com. And if you do get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast, or we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. And like everybody, we enjoy a bit of praise. So please go to iTunes, give us a review and tell all your friends about the Women's Podcast. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 